You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week is part two of our conversation with the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, John Sopko. Mr. Sopko and his office conduct audits and inspections to detect any waste, fraud, and abuse in the $137 billion that have been appropriated since 2002 on Afghanistan reconstruction. If you missed part one, go back and listen to last week's episode, which is the beginning of our conversation with Mr. Sopko. And before we get started, here is your reminder that the lawyers on NSLT, including Mr. Sopko, our host Elisa and Yvette, and our special guest host Harvey Rishikoff, are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Uh, great, John. I think we, you mentioned that um, you have the high-risk list that has been um, such that corruption remains sort of a top strategic threat to legi- legitimacy and sex of the Afghan government. Um, can you sort of focus a little bit more on what your vision is for the corruption issue and how you see this being effectuated? And if, if you know... Because uh, we're all sort of focused on that transition. Uh, you know, corruption has been historically a problem in Afghanistan. Uh, some would say, unfortunately, it's gotten worse. Uh, and we wrote a lessons learned report on that. Actually, that was the first lessons learned report we issued. And in part because so many people in the State Department and DOD said that is the most serious problem, not the Taliban, not ISIS, but it's the corruption. Because corruption is not a law enforcement issue in a place like Afghanistan. We tend to think of corruption as somebody paying a cop, you know, you give them a ham sandwich or you, you know, you kick back 10 bucks or something in a speeding ticket. Corruption is endemic and it's a security issue uh, because the part of the reason we're there is to create a government that can function and can work with its people to stop terrorist groups from migrating in or growing and then therefore is a threat to us. But the Taliban and ISIS and all the other terrorist groups are using the corruption of the Afghan government as a recruiting tool. We've seen that. And we are identified with the corrupt warlords, the corrupt politicians, the corrupt police who harass and uh, hurt the average Afghans. So that is the serious issue we're dealing with in Afghanistan. You know, I used to be a prosecutor with the organized crime section, and I know something about corruption, but it's totally different there. Uh, It's from top to bottom, it's tribal, And it is a serious threat and remains a serious threat. And it's tied in with the narcotics issue too. Can we um, just get a couple of specific examples? Because we're talking abstractly about corruption. What are some of the um, kind of most shocking uh, instances of corruption that you've uncovered while while you've been in this position? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, um, Three words can sort of uh, 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 highlight. I mean, I I, I talk about uh, uh, gas, ghosts, and uh, gangsters. Uh, You know, (laughs) I I didn't know 
I would be spending so much time chasing ghosts and chasing fuel. Uh, you know, the military has told us that over half of the fuel we provide to the Afghans disappears. Okay. Now we're talking billions. So you imagine what that impact is. Uh, you talk about ghosts. I remember the first person to tell me about ghosts. I look like I'm, I'm, I'm following, you know, I'm one of these ghostbusters. But the first person to tell me about ghosts was President Ghani. I had dinner at his house before he was elected president. And he said, Mr. Sopko, you know, you're paying the salary of an Afghan teacher and a soldier and a civil servant. And it's all the same Afghan. And that Afghan doesn't exist. And he's correct. We were. We are. There are many ghosts, but the bigger problem is not so much the salary gets siphoned off to somebody, but the fact that the personnel number is what drives what we call the long tail. So we give boots, we provide boots, guns, uh, fuel, uh, uh, health care, uh, you know, uh, everything based on the number of soldiers. And if they aren't there, they don't need those guns, those boots, that food, that fuel. That just gets siphoned away. And that's throughout, throughout the Afghan uh, situation. So whether it's ghost teachers, ghost civil servants, ghost police, ghost, uh, you name it, we got that problem. And that's something that Congress responded to us. Because I remember the first time we raised this based upon the information we were gleaning and everybody poo-pooed it. And then lo and behold, the evidence started to come out. So much so that Congress then basically said, "Is you can't spend money, DOD, on anybody who's a policeman or, or a uh, soldier, Afghan policeman or soldier, unless he's in this system uh, that they created a, a, an improved biometric system. So we had something there. Gas, as I said, one of the biggest cases I gave, uh, turned over to uh, President Ghani almost after he was elected the first time, had to do with a price-fixing case on a, uh, a billion-dollar fuel contract that the Afghans reached, I mean, uh, let. And we found evidence about a uh, price-fixing in Dubai with a whole bunch of people. And uh, Ghani was able to uh, quash that contract, fire a bunch of generals involved, and set up a national procurement authority to uh, centralize procurement. Uh, still, no one's been prosecuted. I don't have jurisdiction over it because it was Afghan on Afghan crime, although it was U.S. money involved. But uh, uh, the, that, no one's been prosecuted yet. We're still a little remiss. But that's something. And the, everything is just the gangsters. And basically, you're talking about organized crime groups over there. Who are involved in it. So those are some of the cases uh, we've dealt with in the corruption area. But I think basically fuel, salaries, ghosts, you may want to say, and uh, 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 narcotics are your big corruption issues. But more colorfully, there's also forehead slappers. Can you um, talk about the buildings that melt in the rain? Um, some of the other, uh, some of the other interesting things that you've uncovered on the U.S. side. Yeah, we can. I mean, we, we, we call them head slappers. We, I mean, the best thing is, I think Military Times once did 
a front page and it said, I think it was Military Times or uh, uh, one of the military magazines. It basically says, what the blank were they thinking? And that's uh, one of the first head slappers. And that was, uh, we called it the 64K, uh, 64,000 square foot headquarters built at Camp Leatherneck uh, to the cost of 36, uh, over $36 million. And uh, when it was built, it was built for our surge. Unfortunately, by the time the contract was let, the surge was over uh, or coming to an end. So we built one of the best headquarters in the world. Actually, it's the best built building I've ever been in, in Afghanistan. Beautiful, beautiful equipment, beautiful uh, chairs, tables, desks, you name it. But the Marine Corps general, U.S. general down there said, uh, don't build it. Uh, I don't want it. I won't use it. It's a waste. But he was overruled by some general back in uh, behind the lines who said, oh, well, this money was given to us on a special appropriations from Congress, so we can't uh, not spend it. So we built the building, and it's empty. Still is empty as far as we can tell. Of course, nobody can get down to Camp Weatherneck anymore, so we don't know for sure. Uh, we had some uh, uh, Afghan reporter says it's one of the best built uh, heroin warehouses in Afghanistan, but I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, another head slapper, as you mentioned, the uh, uh, the uh, building, uh, the Wardak fire range. It's interesting how we can build buildings. I don't know if the Germans can build them. They don't melt. But we built this one, and when it rained, uh, literally the bricks melted. So that was a little problem. Uh, we do have some well-built uh, clinics, we found. Unfortunately, they had no electricity and no running water. Uh, we found one which had wonderful electricity, but the cost of running the generators, because it wasn't tied to the grid, was greater than the entire budget of the provincial health system. So we gave them a building that they couldn't afford to use. Now that's smart. That's a head slapper. Uh, one of the probably the best one is the G222. We spent... Uh, almost $500 million purchasing airplanes out of an Italian boneyard. Uh, these were uh, planes for the Afghan uh, military. And it turned out they couldn't fly. Uh, they literally uh, fell apart as they were flying over to Afghanistan. Uh, they never really met their purpose. They had to, we had to, pilots say they had to use, uh, uh, as the planes landed in Kabul, parts fell off of it. So those planes eventually, after we discovered them, uh, they basically were turned into scrap. And I think we got three cents on the dollar on that. Uh, and then, of course, there's the famous Marriott Hotel, which was located across the street from the embassy. And this was OPIC, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, uh, gave, uh, I think it was 70-some million dollars, no, $85 million for the OPEC Hotel. Um, but they never went out and checked on it. So it was a, uh, the outside looked very nice, and uh, the inside uh, <laughs> looked like it was a bombed-out uh, 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 village. It was their Potemkin village. I mean, you, the, you literally, from the outside, it looked beautiful. But when we finally sent somebody inside, we found out that nothing was built to, to specs. It was a total mess. Uh, 
I mean, I could go on and on and on. That's one reason why we did the lessons learned reports. Because at some point, what does it mean? What does this mean? How does this improve things? And I think one of the things it means is you got to have oversight, due diligence. For the Marriott Hotel, OPIC never sent somebody out to take a look before they paid the last check. You know, nobody from USAID went out to see if the clinics actually were hooked up to the grid. Or nobody talked to the Afghans and said, hey, do you really need a clinic that's of Taj Mahal size that will dwarf your budget and you have no money to pay for it? Nobody really went out and took a look at those G222s. So you have to do your oversight. And that is the big problem in Afghanistan. We spent too much money, too fast, in too small a country with too little oversight. And my fear is it's going to continue because we still have billions of dollars in the pipeline. And as I told you, the Afghan government can't support itself. So if we stay, we still got to continue oversight there. So I don't know if those are some of the head slappers. Like there's plenty more where they came from, but uh, it does kind of strike you that. Uh, and let me just say, well, there's another second thing to, to all of those head slappers. The reason we found out about them is because we had people on the ground. Because informants came to us. And this is the old, you got to have sources. Or we saw these things. For example, the G222. They, if you, any of you flew into Kabul, you, I noticed, because I fly in four times a year or more, I saw these big gray hulking airplanes sitting across the tarmac from the main uh, uh, airport and facility. And I just wondered to myself, what were these planes? They're all jumbled up and there was actually trees growing up in between them. So I threatened to go over and see what they were. And I tried to get my staff to go and, and some very nice young men with high powered guns who worked for the US military said, no, you can't go over there, we'll rescue. So I told him, I said, well, I'm coming back in three months and you can arrest me, but it'll be front page of the New York Times. So lo and behold, three months later, I show up and there's a very nice, very perky uh, Air Force Colonel who tells me, Mr. Sopko, we're happy to show you the airplanes. And you know something, Mr. Sopko, we're never gonna do that again. Now, if you're investigator Clouseau, you say, that's a good tip when a guy tells me we're never going to do that again. And the irony is, we looked at the broader issue of why did we buy 20 some planes that couldn't fly in Afghanistan? The DODIG had come in and done an audit, but only on the spare parts package. They forgot to look at the bigger picture. The same thing with the 64K. I had a general officer come to me and bring me aside and say, you got to look at this building because this is indicative of the problem of MILCON, military construction. Once you start, it never stops, even if you don't need it. The DODIG had the same tip. They ignored it. They weren't interested. The Marriott Hotel. You realize the Marriott Hotel was literally across the street, is literally across the street from our embassy. 
So we just decided one day, we told the embassy, we're going to walk over and send our engineers over. And then they saw what a mess it was. OPIC refused to go over because they said it was a security issue. But they never even bothered to ask the embassy to send over somebody to take a look or any of the other people. So those are the things, again, I saw this Marriott Hotel being built and the painting on the outside, but I kept asking everybody in the embassy, our ambassador on down, what is that? Because it, it towers over the U.S. Embassy compound. It actually is a security risk. Actually, the U.S. taxpayer since the OPEC disaster has been paying for guards in that building seven by 24, seven by 365 days a year, because that would be a perfect place to attack our embassy. So we have to guard it, U.S. taxpayer expense. But we took the time to kick the tires. And that is one of the lessons learned from all of those horror, horror stories. And I'm sorry I droned on, but it, it's something that you, it's, it's simple on one hand, but it, we just failed to do it. Uh, we failed to do our due diligence and we wonder why we're, we're robbed blind. Well, thank you for giving us all of that background. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the reports that are sent to Congress in the hope that they can spur some changes there. Would you be able to talk about the sort of information that Congress requests and the kind of information that our leaders on the Hill are interested in coming out of Afghanistan? Yeah, it's, uh, we've had a very good relationship with the Hill and, uh, uh, you know, we issue a quarterly report, which they are very interested in. Uh, and they've, uh, uh, asked us to testify about, it. I think I've testified about 22 times before Congress, uh, since I became the IG. Uh, you know, the, the key issue that comes up a lot is the security. Cause we, 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 produce a report that tries to describe the security situation there. Not that we oversee our American troops the way they fight, but we oversee all of the money that goes through the U.S. military to the Afghan military to see how well we are training them and supplying them and uh, preparing them for this. And uh, that's one of the things we spent a lot of time talking about. Uh, and the, as a result, uh, uh, Congress, after some of our reports, they've reduced the funding for UH-60s. I think we saved over $460 million because we were sending UH-60s over to Afghanistan, and they had no pilots and crew uh, to work there, uh, to use for them. So we were just sending them over and let them sitting outside, uh, not to be used. Uh, there was Congress, as a result of our, uh, our work and their hearings, uh, you know, prohibited, as I told you, payments for uh, ghost soldiers or ghost police unless uh, the Afghans uh, put people on this uh, uh, enrollment, enrolled them in this APPS system. Uh, based upon our work, there were changes made to the Leahy law and its use in Afghanistan. We took a look at the how that was being enforced in Afghanistan and some of the problems there. Uh, so there are a number of areas where uh, Congress has uh, followed up on our work and uh, have actually tasked us with additional work. I mean, we are the only inspector general that I know of 
who have been asked to audit a foreign government. And uh, that has come about three years running. The appropriations committees have basically said you will uh, review the Afghan government's uh, uh, strategy to fight corruption and their implementation. So we're doing that right now. Uh, we've also been asked by Congress uh, to, uh, based upon our reports, uh, to audit the counter-narcotics program, uh, as well as to audit some of the uh, work and money spent to uh, help women in Afghanistan. Uh, ironically, we've also been asked by uh, Ghani, President Ghani, to take a look and audit his uh, uh, power uh, uh, consortium, DABS, it's called. Uh, so that's, uh, we were able to get in there. And the reason we're interested in that, normally we don't work on other countries' projects, but because we put so much money on budget, direct assistance to the Afghan uh, energy uh, department, that uh, this is a way to protect uh, Afghan, uh, U.S. money that went to uh, uh, dabs. So uh, we've been very uh, responsive to Congress, and Congress has been very uh, interested in our work. John, thank you. Um, I think we're winding down, but I think my sort of last question is that, um, so we've been in Afghanistan for quite a while. As you know, we, a lot of our friends from uh, Ambassador Crocker to Steve Dillard, there's been a lot, a lot of Americans spent a lot of time, as you, as you have, on this mission. Um, what's your sense of how, how does this end? How does the Afghanistan story conclude? We have the ambassador working on potential uh, negotiations, Khalizad. Uh, so, what's your take on the end, the end game for Afghanistan? You know, that gets into a real policy discussion mm. as to, uh, and and. IGs shouldn't do policy. I don't do policy. I do process. So, but, but my personal feeling, I mean, again, I, I have a, a lot of respect for the Afghans. Uh, a lot of them have become uh, colleagues and friends. And again, you know, I meet with President Ghani. I meet with Abdullah when I go there. I meet with a lot of the uh, mid-level and high-level officials. Uh, they're wonderful people who are trying to do the best they can in a very bad circumstance. I also meet a lot of Americans who have spent a lot of time, and you know some of them too, in the embassy, in, in state, in aid, DOD, other agencies, other agencies that we don't really think about, like uh, the Commerce Department and uh, that work over there. And there's a lot of contractors. And, and people don't pay attention to the number, and we actually did a report, the number of U.S. contractors who have been killed or injured. Yeah. People ignore that. Uh, they have given their lives, uh, too. I, you know, we hope there is peace. We hope the Afghans can get together, the Taliban, uh, the government, and work out a settlement, because this obviously is the answer. Um, but it has to be done carefully, and they have to work carefully, and it, it can't happen, or it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, so we, as long as it's been, we still have to look at what's happening on the ground and act accordingly. Uh, I think the fear of a lot of people in our government, 
uh, and in Afghanistan, I hear that is if we act precipitously, uh, it could have dire consequences to uh, the continuation of the Afghan government. Uh, and it would basically risk uh, all the gains we did make. And we have made gains. As much as I've raised some real head slappers, some really stupid things we did, we did accomplish a lot. We have accomplished a lot. And you really don't want to waste it. So, But I turn that over to the administration, uh, to senior officials there, and to Congress to determine how you know, we want to end our, that's a policy role, but we hope for the best and we hope for peace. Thank you. Well, I, I, I hope the wonderful girls of Afghanistan are, are not a casualty of whatever peace is, is achieved. Uh, but I want to pivot for a minute to an entirely different topic. So before this, I, I think some of your bona fides come from the fact that you were uh, a prosecutor of a crime family in Cleveland. Um, how, did this, uh, how did this prepare you for what you're doing now? And, and if you could just briefly tell us, uh, what similarities do you see, sir? Well, now you're, you're dredging up ancient <laughs> history. Uh, yeah, I, I did. I was with the Organized Crime and Racketeering Section of the Department of Justice, Cleveland Strike Force, and uh, uh, was the first uh, prosecutor to actually uh, use RICO uh, to take down an entire uh, family hierarchy. Uh, the boss, the underboss, the consigliere, a whole bunch of capos. Uh, there was a whole bunch of them. There was a mob war going on in the 70s uh, between two factions. Uh, there was uh, John Nardi and an Irish uh, a guy named Danny Green. I think there was a movie that came out about the case called uh, To Kill the Irishman. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, versus uh, Jack Licavoli and his, uh, 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 his faction. You know, it, it prepared me in, in one way that, uh, you know, I, I, I view that all of this is hard work and nothing happens quickly. And if we in the United States had a serious problem of organized crime up to, you know, my case was in 1979 and it ended. We had multiple trials until uh, 1982 when I came down to work for Sam Nunn. Uh, if we have problems, obviously a place like, we shouldn't be surprised that Afghanistan has problems of organized crime. Um, I also learned working for the strike force because the strike force was an interesting concept that uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy came about. And that was, again, it's whole of government. The concept was to bring together all of the various federal law enforcement agencies under one roof to look at a specific problem. It was a whole of government approach. It was based upon the flying squads of, uh, uh, of London. Uh, where they attacked uh, criminal elements that way. That had never been done before until Bobby Kennedy came up with that idea with the organized crime strike forces. Uh, but we're still facing the same issue in Afghanistan. We don't have a whole of government approach. We don't have a well-coordinated, and if you read our reports. So the problem is the United States, we as Americans don't really learn lessons too well. You know, so we do tend to repeat them. Uh, but, uh, so that's, that's my experience. You can't compare Cleveland, beautiful city that, uh, my family still has family there, yeah, the Kabul, 
but uh, it did have serious problems. It was the bomb capital of the United States back when I was prosecuting cases. And uh, uh, that, that did prepare me to avoid uh, the Taliban and explosions in Afghanistan to some extent. So John, I'm going to sign off and let Yvette, uh, I let Nicole sign off. But uh, we say now at, um, at DOD, at the National War College, it's not lessons learned, it's lessons identified. Yeah, lessons observed, you're right. It's only when you get the Joe Dunfords, when yeah. you get the people to incorporate it, and we have done that. And we are actually, just to end on that note, we are another example of our success is we are teaching courses at the Foreign, uh, Foreign Service Institute, National Defense University, the War College, and all of that, based upon our lessons learned. So that's going to be, personally, that is the lasting legacy of SIGAR, that we are the only ones in the U.S. IG community doing lessons learned reports and doing whole of government lessons learned reports. And I think some of my brethren in the IG community should be thinking about doing that. Great. All right. Well, Mr. Sopko, thank you so much for being with us today. We're going to link your bio for our listeners. Uh, and we're going to add a profile from cleveland.com uh, that talks in great depth about your career, because I think some of our younger listeners in particular look at these career tracks, and I think they perceive them as a roadmap for themselves. So that's great. Uh, we hope to see you again soon as this thing changes in Afghanistan. We hope you'll join us in the future. Happy to do so. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners who are new to this area of the law, we're going to hyperlink the statute that established the cigar and the website with the reports, including those interactive ones we discussed for you to check out. All right. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments uh, and feedback because we definitely want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone. We're all in this together, even though we're apart. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.